the word. Greetings from the Evangelical Congregational Church of Easton. And I just want to say that when I bought my copy of a Brakel at the same time that Mark did, I immediately began to read it. So. <laughs> I'm very surprised that he gave it away. I think I would be a little hesitant to give it away. It's been such a blessing. I think both of us remarked that it is a systematic theology, but it's so pastoral. It's so uh, gentle and loving, and yet uh, there's correction in there, rebuke in there, and wonderful teaching in those volumes. If you're ever able to uh, grab hold of them or borrow them, uh, well worth uh, your reading. This evening I would like to take you to the book of Job, and I'd like to read to you from chapter 9, beginning at verse 25, and reading on through the end of the chapter, Job chapter 9, verses 25 through 35. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hear God's word. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good, they pass by like swift ships like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and wear a smile. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I'm condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us, who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. And thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this book of Job this uh, experience that he went through in his sufferings, Father, and he is a a living letter in a way, Father. He didn't have the Bible like we have, the wonderful truths and promises. He learned them through experience. But what we see is a remarkable uh, example of redeeming grace in his life. Under the unbearable suffering, and yet he persevered in the faith. Father, I pray that you would help us as we look at this particular passage, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think it would be helpful if we spend a little time with this particular passage discussing the context of what Job is saying. I think most of you are familiar with this book, I hope, but uh, if you... We have privy to something that Job didn't know, and his friends didn't know, that council meeting that God held, where we read in chapter 1 that the Lord said to Satan, and yes, Satan was there too. 
Satan didn't just wander in. He had to come in and report. He is one of God's servants. As Luther put it, uh, the Satan is God's Satan. And we see God saying to him, have you considered my servant Job there in verse 8, that there's none like him on the earth, blameless, upright man who fears God and shuns evil? And here's the crux of the whole book, this response, this challenge offered up by Satan. Satan answers in verse 9 and says, does Job fear God for nothing? It's his desire to show Job up for what he is and to show up ultimately God as, uh, for who he is, that he's, his redeeming grace doesn't amount to much of anything. It's his desire that Job would ultimately curse God to his face. So we see that God allows Satan to proceed to bring on the, these various measures of suffering. And look at the nature of the sufferings he went and endured. There was a military expedition against his, his, uh, his possessions and servants were killed. There was a terrorist attack. There was a natural disaster that occurred. He experienced bereavement, losing not just one, not just two, but ten of his children all at once. And even his wife uh, said to him, Job, just say goodbye to God. That's what that curse God means. It's, it's the kind of goodbye, goodbye God, uh, and just die. And of course, it was made even worse by his physical sufferings to the point uh, where he was on the brink of death almost, uh, uh, but God did not allow Satan to take his life. Well, his friends arrive. And they have good intentions, and they really want to help Job, and they spend time just sitting in silence, wanting to identify with him, let them know that they're there. But it's not the Job they recognize sitting there. And they were a comfort to Job until they opened their mouths. <laughs> and if you read back through Eliphaz, his message to Job is, Job, you reap what you sow. You're suffering terribly. Clearly, you've sinned terribly. You need to repent and confess it. That was his message. That was not Job's understanding. He didn't accept what Eliphaz said, but he couldn't explain why he was suffering himself. He didn't know the answer to that question either. And of course, we come to the second in line, Bildad. And his main question there is in chapter 8, verse 3, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? Essentially, is God unjust, Job? Of course, the answer is, of course not. But then he points out in a very harsh and cruel way, and consider Job uh, enduring all that he's enduring and it's, it's unbearable suffering. And he says, look what happened to your children. Obviously, they were sinning. And that's why they have been judged. What a terrible thing to tell him at this point in time about his children. But that was his theology too. You reap what you sow. Look what's happened to them. Insinuating, by the way, that all your prayers and all of those sacrifices weren't worth much. They were judged rightly. And that's going to happen to you. You, you need to do something about that. There's still time for you, Job. Amend your ways. And look what he says in 
Verse 20, Bildad, in uh, verse 20 of chapter 8. Behold, uh, Job, God will not cast away the blameless. That's the issue. Job knows he's blameless. God has said he's blameless. But here he's implying, Job, you're not blameless. If you were, God would not cast you away like he's doing right now. You're more like what he's about to say here, nor will he uphold evildoers. That's you, Job. That's all he had to say to him. Well, in the earlier part of chapter 9, we see that Job agrees with him. Truly, I, I know it is so. You're right. God is not unjust. Uh, but then he has this penetrating question he wants to ask. But So how can a man be righteous before God? That's the big question. That's the issue for him. It's enough for him to suffer. But he, he's really concerned about his relationship to God in particular. How do you stand right before God? And he knows he won't get his answer from his friends. They've already demonstrated that and will continue to demonstrate that through the course of the book. And so what does Job want to do? He wants to go to God. We, we have a courtroom scene that Job envisions here. He says in verse 3 of chapter 9, I, I want to contend with God. I want to argue with him. I want him in the witness stand. I want to question him. And ask him, why are you treating me this way? I don't understand it. I don't believe what my friends are telling me about it. Something's wrong there. He's insistent uh, in several occasions, as we see it in chapter 9. If you look at verse 15, if I were righteous, he says. In verse 20, if I were righteous, though I were blameless. And then he says it very clearly in verse 21, I am blameless. Something doesn't add up here. And then he makes the case, though, too. Yeah, I want to continue with you. I want to go to, into court with you. But you're too powerful for me. You're, you're overwhelming to me. You're, you're too wise to me. And look what he says in verse 20 of chapter 9. Though I were righteous, and I am, but my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. What is he saying there? Yes, I am blameless, but if I really was under cross-examination, a multitude of sins would be exposed. And I would essentially condemn myself with what I have to say. And besides, look what he kind of concludes there in verse 22 of chapter 9. God, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. It doesn't make sense to him. And Job is beginning to think this, Job, that God is somehow unjust with him. And so we find Job here in our passage this, this evening, suffering unbearably at this time, and not only frustrated, but he finds himself between a rock and a hard place here. It's a kind of a hopelessness that he's expressing here. His suffering, as I said, is unbearable. Yes, I've lost all my goods, all my that prosperity, my children, all ten of them, gone. My wife has even encouraged me to just say goodbye to God and to die. And my health, and he has some very vivid descriptions of how he's suffering health-wise in later chapters in the book. But the primary mode that's really causing him to suffer is the nature of the relationship that he has with God. He wants to be in the right and he's kind of saying, I thought I knew him. I thought I knew I had that relationship. And the question is, uh, it's all being turned upside down on me. Now what do I do? And by the way, I'm running out of time. 
That's kind of what he's saying there. That it's like a, a, a fast ship passing by. When I read that, I thought of those racing shells on the Charles River, if you've ever seen them. They just kind of skim through the water, pass by, or the, the eagle swooping in on its prey. I don't have a lot of time. Lord, help. I, I need to contend and argue with you. Well, he's frustrated with that. So what does he do? Well, first thing he comes up with is, maybe I should just put on a happy face. Maybe that's the way to deal with it. It's interesting that Henry David Thoreau, maybe some of you have heard that name, but at one time he wrote that this, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. Isn't that interesting? And his conclusion, and what he derived from that, is that most people find life unfulfilling. It's unsatisfying. It doesn't add up to what they thought it was going to be. And his solution is, you've got all the wrong value system. You who want power, you who want status, money, all of those things that many people pursue in this life, you got, you're chasing the wrong thing. You're not going to get the satisfaction with those things. So his solution is, just live with less. That'll do it. And that's kind of what he did in his own life. But I would suggest to you that Thoreau didn't quite get there because there is a, in everyone this suppressed source of desperation. And I would say that it's guilt. God has given us all a conscience. And it's like a little courtroom in there, isn't it? The prosecuting attorney and the law and... Uh, Paul even says in Romans, uh, the opening chapters, is he's, he's coming at, like a prosecuting attorney in those opening chapters, and he deals with every category of mankind. I don't care if you're civilized, if you're a barbarian, if you're Gentile, if you're a Jew, if you've never heard the law, never heard anything, you still have that conscience. And he says in Romans 2.15 that the, those who've never even heard these things, they, they still have the work of the law written in their hearts. Meaning they still have a moral consciousness. Their conscience bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or even excusing them. And maybe that desperation is more than just an unfulfilled life. There's, there's that burden of guilt that everyone knows when they've done wrong. I stand down at the abortion clinic down in Albert with a number of folks, and I see these cars pull in, a, a father, a mother with a young girl, and they're hiding. They know it's wrong. They know down deep it's wrong. And that's there. And what do you do with it? Well, a lot of people handle it in a variety of ways. Some simply ignore that. Ignore that guilt that they feel. Some rationalize it. They, they go and compare themselves to other people. The Pharisee satisfied himself. Thank God I'm not like that man over there, that publican. By the way, if you're looking down at the Pharisee right now, you just became the Pharisee. <laughs> Some ignore it. Some think, well, I can make it up. I can do something that will balance it out, or I, I, I can rationalize, or I can joke about it, uh, make light of it. Do you ever have someone say to you after they've done or said something, I'll probably go to hell for this? 
They're right. <laughs> they're not in Christ, but they're dealing with it on a joking kind of a level. And so what, it, what I'm getting at here and what Job's getting at is he understands the issue here about being right before God and joy and satisfaction. It's a legal issue with God. And what he's saying is, uh, even with a happy face, maybe I can ignore it for a while, when inside there's still that turmoil, but at least on the outside I can have that happy face. But sooner or later, I'm guilty apparently, and I'm going to be sentenced. And that in his state of mind at this point in time, that's what he's starting to think. And by doing this approach to the, this happy face approach, I'm, I'm just putting off the inevitable. It's going to happen eventually. Look what he says uh, uh, in verse 28. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you're not going to hold me innocent. He's now convinced, starting to think that uh, something's wrong. If I'm condemned, why do I labor in vain? Why, why, why even bother? What's the point as he contemplates that solution to his problem? And he says, uh, again, uh, he, he destroys the, the blameless and the, the wicked. There's, there's no sense of it to, to me in that regard. But look, look what he's doing and starting to do in maintaining his own integrity. I'm blameless. He's essentially denied the integrity of God. That, that's where he's been pushed in that kind of direction. And, and by the way, one thing we have to keep in mind in the book of Job we don't see the name of the Satan after those uh, encounters back in the early chapters, but he's there in the book. And he is using these men unwittingly on their part, but using them to speak through them. And these are the kind of things that he's addressing al along the way. He's going after the very integrity of God. You say he's blameless, God. I say he's not. That's, that's, the, that's the issue here. That, that's what's happening here. And, and, and Job knows that this is related to God. He says it in the latter part of verse 24. If it's not he, verse 24 of chapter 9, if it's not he, who else could it be? He understands God's part of this. And he's questioning his understanding there of God in, in this, uh, uh, what he's thinking at this point in time. Well, what else can I do? Well, maybe I should try to cleanse myself. That's what I'll do. And you know, that's the strategy of many, isn't it? I don't know how many, I, I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people and ask them about uh, what they think about the idea, if in fact there is a God, and if in fact they're going to appear before him someday, their response is, well, I'm doing the best I can. I try to live right, I am a good person, and on balance, uh, it'll, it'll work out. Makes me think of the young man, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Uh, what must I do, <laughs> there it is, do, to inherit e eternal life? And, and Jesus made it very clear, keep the commandments. And he named several of them. And what did the man say? Instead of falling on his hands and knees and beating his chest and crying out for mercy, he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Uh, is there anything missing? Have I, have I missed one of them? 
He thought that was the way that he could somehow appear before God. Paul had those ideas, the Apostle Paul. Prior to his conversion, he looked at the law and said as regards his keeping of it, and he was under the Mosaic covenantal law, I'm blameless. I've kept all of those points. And, uh, and for him to say that meant that he was engaged in all the meticulous cleansings and all of the ritual, everything associated with the Mosaic covenant. But then a change took place. I think Paul gives us some insight into that change in his letter to the Romans, chapter 7. He's talking about the law, and he says, is something wrong with the law? Is the law sin there in verse 7 of chapter 7? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. That seems like a strange statement. He knew the law, but he didn't know the foundation of the law. He was keeping it on an outward basis. Well, let's see, I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't commit adultery, I honor the Sabbath, I don't take his name in vain, I acknowledge him as the one true living God. I don't make a little figurines of him, all of those kinds of things. But he, he, he didn't understand that the foundation of it was love for God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love for his neighbor. Paul came to see that he didn't, it wasn't out of love for God that he did those things. It was out of love for Paul. He was his own idol. And I think in chapter 7, he, says, he goes on to say that the law says, you shall not covet, covet. And I think God attacked his conscience with that. Think of that 10th commandment, coveting. Isn't it really at the foundation of all the breaking of the law? I steal because I covet I commit adultery because I covet. I don't honor the Sabbath because I covet my own time. Right down the line is that foundation of coveting. And what did he covet? The very thing that Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees. They do all the right things. Let's see, they pray, they fast, they give alms. Why? To gain approval from the people. And Paul came to see that's why I do all those things. It's not out of love for God, it's out of love for me. I covet that. I'm my own idol. But sin, he goes on to say, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me in, and by it, killed me. The law beat me up. I came to realize that you can't get there from here trying to keep the law. I remember in junior high when some of the fellow students were running for office with our particular class, one gal put up a poster and it said this, don't read this. She was taking advantage of the way we deal with the law, isn't it? <laughs> We, of course I'm going to read it. You can't tell me not to read it. That's how we deal with the law. We can't keep the law. And he, he came under that conviction. And what we really find and what Job realized here is we can never really cleanse ourselves. That can't happen. It's interesting what Jesus did with the disciples as John records it in John 13 and that time with them in the upper room. You remember he got up from the table, 
got on his hands and knees and began to wash their feet. Peter was taken, whoa, you can't wash me. Well, if you, I don't, you'll have no part with me. Well, that alarmed Peter. Well, wash all of me then. <laughs> well, you're already clean, Peter. What are you talking about? You already have a new heart. You already are uh, a, a work of, re we see the work of redeeming grace in you. You're in the early stages of your understanding, but you're clean. You're forgiven. You have new life. But you still need your feet clean. He was talking about the fact that there's still that residue of that old nature that is no longer dominant and yet often very powerful and surprising us on many occasions. I, I liken it to uh, if you were to go out and find a roadkill skunk and carry it around with you, it's dead. But it stinks up everything you do. And so too that remnants of the old nature, it, it, it's there and we need our feet cleaned on a regular basis. Because uh, there's, there's still much that pushes us in a particular direction. I, I, I know the law, I love it, but I, I do this. I, I, this conflict that's going on, Paul understood it. Paul knew, that, or Job knew that this cleansing would have no, with all his efforts, uh, would be no help. He knew he had not committed a, a gross sin. But how can this effort to cleanse oneself, uh, any pretense of purity and innocence, that should be demolished in us. Our efforts to obey perfectly. And shouldn't that affect the way we live as Christians with others? Shouldn't we be merciful with others and compassionate? I don't know, perhaps some of you have followed some of this trial that took place recently with this lawyer, Alex Murdoch, in South Carolina, and they televised it. And here was a man who was a fourth generation uh, prosecuting attorney and rich and powerful in that part of South Carolina, and, and, and suddenly his whole world collapsed on him, found out uh, some of the things that he had done, uh, the, his odious uh, behavior, uh, de defrauding people of their insurance money. Uh, now more is coming to light. Convicted and sentenced for murder of his wife and his son. And I was listening to his being questioned by the defense attorney and by the prosecuting attorney. And I didn't feel sympathy with him, but I felt a kind of a pity to see him sitting there. His whole world collapsed around him, and it's certainly not over for him. And the thought that came into mind was, you know, there but for the grace of God, that would be me. I could, uh, apart from God's restraining grace, and as Riley uh, puts it, the, the, the seed of every possible sin you can think of is there within us. But it's God's restraining grace that keeps us from, from doing these things. Now, they, they were calling him a, a, a murderer and a, and a liar. He is, and a monster. But even as Christians, don't we still commit murder? You don't have to take a gun and shoot somebody to commit murder. All you have to do is slander somebody. You kill that person in your mind, you kill that person in the mind of the person you're relating that to. Every time you have something to say when someone cuts you off in traffic, uh, you just committed murder. 
How about coveting? You ever coveted uh, your neighbor for something? Uh, uh, We're born liars. We are seasoned sinners. Let's not forget that. The older you get, the more you're a seasoned sinner that you are. You never escape that in, in this life. We will, were sinners, are sinners, will always be sinners in this life. Job understood the, the temptations that a man can feel. At a later point in the book, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I don't look at the young maidens. Isn't that a temptation, men? And shouldn't women keep that in mind and, and why women should dress modestly to help the poor men out? <laughs> It's there, that, that nature. Well, Job doesn't find relief in that idea either. So he finally expresses, uh, I need a mediator. I need some help. I can't confront God directly because God's not a man. He's not like me. God is sovereign. God is powerful. And besides, he's invisible. I can't even see him. And there's this infinite gulf that I'm understanding between myself and God. He's my creator. I'm the creature. I want to contend with him in this courtroom setting. My friends are telling me I should go to the confessional. I don't want to go there. I want to go to court. But I would lose in court. It would be a no contest. How can we possibly come together? Remember, his main concern in the midst of all his suffering is to be right with God. That's his intention. And thereby, he's showing faith even in the midst of this suffering. There he's persevering. He wants that right relation. He wants to be justified before God. That's what he wants. And to be justified before God is to be reconciled with God. Isn't it? Now, it's interesting about uh, a relationship with God. There are unbelievers, worldly people, who, who desire a relationship with God. That's not unique to Christians. But it's a different kind of a motivation. They, they're not opposed to it. In fact, it's even they're desirous of a relationship with God. You know, the God that you call upon when you get into trouble. Help. Help me out in this situation. That God you call upon for protection. You know, the God that we manufacture that can be appeased. <laughs> yeah, I like that God. That's the kind of God I'd like to have a relationship with. And by the way, God, that God, I want that relationship with that God because he's a good excuse for me. What do I mean by that? Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you have said it, or maybe you're still saying, I, I'm only human. You ever say that? You're essentially condemning yourself. How were Adam and Eve created? Perfect. Blameless. The the law, they didn't just have the work of the law. They had the law written on their hearts. And they did what they did out of love for God. But now we're content to say, uh, well, I'm only human. What, What are we really saying when we do that? If I sin, it's God's fault. Because that's how he made me. Do you think that? Isn't that the old Adamic nature? Adam, where are you? What'd you do? The woman. (laughs) 
She's the one. She gave me the fruit. You know, the woman that you gave me? It's your fault, God. Are you blaming God in your life for your problems and your troubles and your struggles and your misbehavior and giving your, excusing yourself? Because God's a good excuse. But you see, all of those attitudes about having a relationship with God have nothing to do with reconciliation. That's a very different thing. And that's what Job is desirous of. And, and, and what very interesting about Job is Job, if you have the opportunity to just follow the flow of Job's responses to his friends, he's making progress. He understands he needs someone to bridge that gap. Someone, that gap between the eternal and the temporal. That gap between God and man, the, the God-man. That's what I need. Here's how one has put it. I need someone to see that justice is done. That's what I want. That's what God wants. But I need someone to, to bring that to pass. And, and here, Job, in a very dimly, is seeing the promised seed. And by the way, I would say to you that we sometimes uh, misunderstand the Old Testament saints. They knew a lot more than we give them credit for. They knew something about that promise in the garden of a seed who would come and destroy the works of Satan. I need someone somehow to mediate. And, cause, and we'll, Job's understanding will grow through this uh, course of this book. Now we know something. And again, I'll, I'll say it, Job didn't have a Bible to refer to. He didn't see some of the teaching of Paul and Peter and John and Jesus himself. He couldn't look up 1 Timothy 2.5 and get the answer. There is, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He didn't know that yet. He's, his experience is kind of like a letter, except instead of words of teaching, the teaching comes through what he's learning and saying. That's what's going on there. In a way, he's kind of like a, a, a prophet. He's in foretelling these kinds of things, to how to understand his suffering. It's not just reaping what you sow. There's something more to it. It's Jesus who will ultimately ensure that justice is done. And justice has to be done because there really is a barrier between God and man, isn't there? It's called sin. And God looks at that barrier and he needs to be, that big word that Paul uses in Romans, he needs to be propitiated. He needs to be satisfied. It was with uh, some young people that I came across uh, right around the time when the virus was very active. And I asked them, do you think God is in this? <laughs> they didn't know. So I said to them, there was a situation that was... Jesus was presented with. He was told about a tower that had fallen and a number of people had been killed. What do you think Jesus said? I don't know. He said, repent or you too will perish. And then one of them said, but doesn't God forgive? I said, yes, but the question is, how does he forgive? Does he just overlook sin? Is he indulgent? No, he's a just and a holy God. The only way God can forgive is in, consistent with his character. He can only forgive justly. 
That's what justification law justification is all about. The law has to be satisfied. Someone has to keep the law. That's the one point of the law. The other point of the law, when there's disobedience, there has to be payment. And that payment that was promised to Adam and Eve prior to the eating of the fruit would be death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. And that death would be eternal death. And there's only one that could do that. No man can survive eternal death. That's what hell's about. But Jesus, who suffered in his human nature on the cross, he also had a divine nature, which gave infinite worth to everything he did. So he actually experienced on that cross in those hours because of who he is, the Son of God incarnate, the equivalent of an eternity in hell. It's, it's hard to imagine. We can't even truly plumb the depths of what he suffered. But he emerged from that. And therefore the law had no more claim on him. Death had no more claim on him. And those are the two wonderful effects of what Jesus accomplished. Don't you love the hymn? Let, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt. There's the legal part of it. And its power. There's the moral part of it. Jesus accomplished both of those aspects. And now the barrier's gone. And a way of access has been opened up through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And Job saw it dimly in the sacrificial system. And he was beginning to grab hold of these things. And he understood the, the, the absolute requirement to, uh, for a mediator to relieve him of the guilt of his sin and then the corruption. Again, Job didn't have this verse that Peter wrote. We do, we know. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body. He, the blameless one, was treated as if all of those sins were his. Bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, now he's talking about new life, not only forgiveness, but new life with a new heart, might what? Might live for what? Righteousness. There, there's the justification, there's the sanctification. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And Christ accomplished both of those things in his redemptive work. The Son of God taking on a human nature, the nature of a creature, Entering into our condition, humbling himself, and not only obediently, but willingly going to the cross so that many would be justified. And, and, and Job was getting the bigger picture as, we, as he moves along here. Job asked the question back in verse 2 of chapter 9. He agreed with Bill Ed, yes, of course God is just, but you're, you're, the way you're using that and mis, misapplying that, that great truth about who God is doesn't fit my situation. I know I have that sin, the sin that you think I've sinned. That's not the explanation for my suffering. There's another answer here. And so he, he wants to go to God and appeal to him. And he asks the question, how can a man be righteous before God? And what's the answer? Jesus, that's how a man can be righteous before God. Having fulfilled all the requirements of the law and having taken away the claim that not only the law has on us, but 
the claim of death. It's interesting about that because Paul and his struggle as a Christian in chapter 2, if that's how you take it, and that is how I take it, finally says, oh, wretched man that I am. I, I know what to do, but I don't do it. I love the law, but this conflict that's going on, who will d- deliver me from this? Christ, this deliverance from this body of sin. And what he's saying is when you die, if you're a Christian, and think of it this way, that's the best day of your life <laughs> because you're finally free of that, any of the effects of sin, the guilt of it and the power of it. It doesn't get any better than that. Because this body of sin will finally will die. And when you die, the law has no, when you're in Christ, the law has no more claim on you. Death has no more claim on you. It's like the murderer on death row. Once he finally goes to, whether he's hung or gassed or whatever it might be, there's no more you can do to him. How much greater that is for the Christian because of what Christ has accomplished. Can a man be right before God? Can a man be just before God? Yes. Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Job asked the question, I need a mediator. Thank you, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What a great work that he accomplished. This is the genius of the gospel. How can God, who is just, justify sinners? Well, there must be a, he is willing to accept a substitute, one who would live the life of righteousness and then pay the debt for sin on behalf of the sinner. And there is what Luther called this marvelous exchange. He you made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And to be in him requires faith, but that's a gift too. You you give what you require. Father, thank you for this reconciliation that is ours through Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone who's still under the illusion that somehow they'll be able to stand before you on the basis of the life they think that they've lived as a good person, Father, that that idea would be just demolished. That they would realize they need a friend in court. And Father, we know that if any man sinned, we have an advocate, even Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you for such a marvelous Savior. Help us to truly contemplate the reality of this reconciliation that you the offended party has provided for us father and we pray these things in the name of jesus christ amen Amen. let's respond to god's word this evening by taking our trinity hymnals and turning to selection 619 If you're able, if you would stand to sing this hymn. 